Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Have you ever asked yourself the question, are we alone? Well, I know I have, and I'm pretty sure you've asked the same question too. I mean, it's been playing through your mind since the beginning of your memory, right? At the forefront of your imagination. Where is the vortex of your existence? What a question to ask yourself. Tonight, in association with Glamour and Goosebumps, TTM Conspiracies take you on a journey into one of the world's most credible and widely accepted alien abduction claims known in the history of all mankind. Travis Walton's account of alien abduction will subdue your mind and eventually challenge your conception of reality. Join us as we investigate Travis Walton's journey. Episode 6 no smoke without fire. You're listening to the TTM Podcast. Good evening and welcome to the TTM Podcast in association with Glamour and Goosebumps. Tonight, we have the fantastic story of Travis Walton in one of the fantastic UFO abduction cases of all time. We're joined in the Archangel in Froome, Somerset, United Kingdom by James Hounsell and James Harrison. And our very, very special guest tonight is Kelsey from Dallas in Texas with our Glamour and Goosebumps channel. To set the scene, we have Kelsey and it's over to you. Yeah, so um, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I think that it's really cool that you all found me all the way from the UK to Texas. And so I'm excited to be able to talk about this Travis Walton case because, you know, I'm just super into aliens and these, these beings that, I mean, after listening to the story of Travis Walton, I mean, if it doesn't make you a believer, I don't know what, it, what will. So are you guys cool with us? Let's go ahead and set the scene and uh, talk a little bit about his backstory and kind of who Travis is. So Travis was born April 23rd, 1957 um, in Phoenix, Arizona. Travis is like a fun loving kid that enjoyed the outdoors. And when he turned five years old, he would actually move to Snowflake, Arizona and be raised um, in the Mormon church by his mother, um, Mary Walton. So really, really close to his mother. Um, growing up there in Snowflake, which is funny because if you think about it, Arizona doesn't get any snow. So Snowflake, yeah. interesting, right? Um, as he grew into his teen years, he would become a bit of a wild child, um, frequenting local bars and even purchasing a motorcycle. But don't get me wrong, Travis was the life of the party. Everybody loved him. He had tons of friends. I mean, he was so personable, very, very charming. And everybody really, really enjoyed Travis and his company. And he would race up and down the streets, like really living his best life with no fear of consequence at all. Like he was just an adrenaline junkie. Um, and so, you know, he would attend college and he would then get a job working at the Apache Sick Graves National Forestry in Snowflake. So it's a little bit outside of Snowflake. It was a bit of a drive, but he wanted to work on this because remember how I was saying how he loved the outdoors? 
that was something that was super important to him. And the great part about working on this crew was that he was not only on a tree cutting contract, but their goal was to enhance the forest by removing dead and weak trees, making room for healthy and stronger growth. And this would make the forest more resilient to fire by allowing the forest to produce higher quality lumber. Um, and, you know, he was all about preserving that forest that he just loved and he took so much pride in his job, but it was definitely a dangerous job. You know, they would work with chainsaws every day. He had a couple accidents. He would watch other crew members, you know, lose fingers and lose, you know, different limbs to, you know, these chainsaw accidents. So it was definitely a little bit dangerous, but I don't think Travis really knew how much danger he could potentially get into. So, you know, at the time of November 5th, 1975, when this abduction took place, he would be on a crew of seven. Um, and so this crew of seven would consist of Mike Rogers, who is the lead. And he would kind of be like the main man, um, you know, really keeping all the troops in a line and helping them stay on that contract deadline so that they could get paid. Then there was Kenny Peterson, Alan and Dwayne, John, Steve, and then there was um, Alan Dallas. And Alan Dallas and um, Travis did not get along. So Alan actually tried to make a move for Travis's girl. And so they ended up getting into, you know, a little bit of a scuffle, like prior to all of this, uh, you know, prior to the abductions, they really hated each other. They just did not like each other at all. Um, and so, yeah, they would be going through the forest that day. So again, November 5th, 1975, they finished that day and they're high off adrenaline because they just chopped down all these trees and they get in the car and typically it's, it's a pretty long drive back to town from the forestry that they were working in. So they would get in the car, some of them, you know, would just kind of relax. And so in the front seat, you've got Mike driving, you have Kenny in the center seat, and then you have um, Travis Walton actually right there in the front, and then you have the other passengers in the back of the truck. So they're driving down this windy kind of forest road and they look into the trees and they see this bright light peering through. And this, you know, at first they were all very concerned that maybe there was a forest fire. And so they all, of course, immediately wanted to stop, put out the fire because that day there, they had also put out a couple other smaller fires. They had had lightning the night before. And so the lightning had struck and those trees, you know, they were just wanted to make sure that the forest, you know, wasn't potentially under fire. So they see this and they notice that the light is actually moving in the trees. And so as they're kind of watching the light move, they're, they're tracking it. And then they realize once they get to this clearing that that's not just fire, that is a beam of light coming from some type of craft. And actually um, it's funny because Alan, who's sitting in the back seat, he yells to the friend, he says, that's a UFO. And all of them just start freaking out because that's, that's what it, it was. They couldn't explain what they were seeing. So they got a little bit closer. And I mean, even before they stopped the car, you see Travis already opening up the door, trying to run to get out, to run up to you know, this, this craft. And I think in his mind at the time, the adrenaline was just pumping and he was so intrigued by it. He thought that he could just run to this craft and it would take off, you know, almost like a spooked deer. That's not what happened. He ran up there and as he was getting closer and all the men in the truck were yelling, Travis, get back here, Travis, get back here. His heart started pounding. He slowed down a little bit and he actually got so close to the ship and he could kind of see, um, you know, the ship from, from his perspective from his view and it was about like 40 kind of um what do you say like 40 feet wide is that right guys yeah 40 feet that's, that's that's what i've heard yeah it was about 40 feet wide whatever so he's standing there and he actually gets so scared that he tries to hide behind a log and when he pops back up he actually gets blasted by this like radiation or something and it pushes him like 20 feet up into the air and slams him to the ground now, you know, obviously straight away, um, you know, to witness that from the car is probably one of the most scariest things that you could ever witness in your life. And obviously immediately from there, Mike obviously takes the wheel of the vehicle and at that point makes a bolt for it. Mm -hmm. Now, I know there's um, obviously the film Fire in the Sky, which um, obviously covers all of this, is, is based on this incident. Now... In, in an interview with Travis, he he claims that the actual in the film they've really dramatized the actual blast from from the uh, from from the, the craft 
impact. It was just a quick jolt of, you know, radiation, uh, almost like an electrical shock, which, which threw him into the air. Whereas in the film, it's a large beam, you know, it, it holds him up in the air and it's dramatized. It just, just obviously uh, uh, along the lines of there's a lot of inconsistencies in the film um, compared to what Travis actually recounts the story as. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, straight away a couple of questions will arise from that. Is one, why on earth did he get out of the vehicle and approach the the, the craft um, for a start? I mean, would would any of you guys get out of a vehicle and approach an extra terrestrial looking uh, craft, which is one of the most scariest things in the world? And the second question is, is you know, were the crew right to leave him? And, and that's a question that, that, that does need looking at a bit more because when you watch the film Fire in the Sky when he's sat up in the hospital bed and Mike leans over to him and says, look, we, we tried to come back for you. Um, when Travis is non-responsive, Mike then proceeds to turn around and, and then does cuss at, does cuss at uh, Travis to say, well, if you hadn't got out in the car in the first place, it wouldn't have been the issue to, you know, to deal with as such. Do you think that he was... Um, that he was right, one, to get out of the car, and two, do you think that his crew were right to leave him? I mean, honestly, Travis has come out later and has said that he thinks that they were 100% in the right for leaving in that instance because Travis was the one who decided to get out of the car and run to, to this aircraft, right? And I, just based on what you're saying, I personally wouldn't just because I know a lot about extraterrestrials now and UFOs for my own research where I would just be scared literally. Oh, scare the bejesus out of me. So I would not be doing that at all. I will say though, Travis doesn't necessarily blame, you know, Mike and the crew for leaving. I just think that that was highly dramatized, like in the fire in the sky movie, um, because they were trying to make it more cinematic. But I think in, in reality though, I think Travis would have done the same thing if he was in the same situation. I think he would have left the scene as well. Yeah. There's, there's also a, a story of, of Travis from earlier on in life where he was in a vehicle with, with people as well and they encountered a bear and he actually got out of the car and chased the bear back into the woods. So it is one of those where, you know, he's, you know, you talk about fight or flight. He's certainly willing to jump into the situation. And, and I think he was, he was certainly prepared to take things head on. So it wasn't necessarily out of character. You know, if somebody was going to do that, it would have been Travis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with a man with a history of the martial arts background that, that Travis does have as well. He's a man that certainly doesn't fear confrontation. Um, he is a real man's man, an alpha of the group, potentially. You know, if you're going out chasing bears back into the forest, you've got some testosterone flowing through your veins. Secondly, when a UFO turns up, if you get out the car... I wouldn't just say you've got testosterone running through your veins you've got balls of steel it's a it's a simple <laughs> yeah. yeah let's be honest i think um i think i would have been um cowering in the back of the boot thinking please god let this go away um so we've had the scene set fantastically well by kelsey um what i'll talk about now is travis's recollection from this moment forward he's been zapped by a beam of light, a radioactive light, which has pushed him through the air, which has allowed his logger friends to flee the scene in absolute terror. Um, from this moment, Travis Walton claims that he was knocked out cold. He was blacked out. He awakes from the light. And um, not only does he see the light that, that blasts him to black out, he sees the light as he wakes up. He thought he was in a hospital. He could hear movement around him, a muffled movement, and thought that after obviously everything he's been through and his impact, that he was indeed in a hospital until he noticed something sinister. He saw beings, and that's how he explains it, as beings standing above him that were not human. Uh, he was not in a hospital at all. Travis Walton then noticed that the creatures were only three to four feet tall and were most likely to be grey aliens. They were small, with huge eyes um, that kept staring at him. They were wearing what looked like to be orange-gray jumpsuits. They were very angry-looking. Travis then uh, flipped out and turns away from the aliens. While he's doing this, he picks up a metal object, um, which was in the spacecraft, and he tries to smash it, like he would in a bar, in a bar fight. 
you would smash the beer bottle to get the jagged edges. Travis tries to do this in the spacecraft with the metal object, but unfortunately for Travis, it doesn't break. The aliens at this point turn away from Travis and leave the room. Travis felt at this point like he was starving for air. It was very difficult to breathe. Travis looks back up and sees a humanoid figure with blonde hair looking directly at him. Now this figure of uh, a humanoid looks Nordic in origin, wearing a space helmet, frosted on the back, yet clear on the front. And the clothes that this Nordic person was wearing were blue. They were blue space coveralls. He then gestures uh, Travis to follow him. Travis, at this point, obviously, is in a fit of panic. Follows him into what he thinks is a hangar. So they leave the spacecraft together with this Nordic person and Travis into a hangar where he sees other spacecraft. Travis, walk, Travis walks up to uh, more humanoid beings. It's at this point where the pressure changes. As he leaves the spacecraft into the hangar, he notices the pressure significantly change. Back to these humanoids. One was woman and two were men which looked pretty much like the first humanoid male that they first saw. The woman, Travis explains, looked like the perfect epitome of what you would consider to be the perfect woman. The skin was extremely soft, face in perfect complexion, hair blonde. The men behind were clearly related, but definitely not looking the same. However, yet again, they were the perfect epitome of the sex in question. Travis tries to talk to the humanoids. However, they would not answer Travis's questions. The humanoids were then trying to get Travis to lie down on a table. They were in a hurry, but Travis was fighting and fighting hard. Eventually, the Nordic humanoids give Travis anesthesia. The next image in Travis's mind is when he's back on Earth. He's opening his eyes. He's on a dirt road, looking up at a light as the alien craft zooms straight back up to space, leaving a huge beam of light in Travis's eyes. So guys, in terms of Travis's testimony, there seems to be more questions than answers. Um, the first one for me is it's completely different to what the movie uh, stated in which um, Travis was subjected to horrific alien experiments. One from being in the room where there is grey alien spacesuits, for instance, where he kicks the alien in the head, at which point the aliens then drag him through a wormhole tunnel of dust with old human you could perceive to be artifacts such as glasses and shoes back into a room where they drag him onto a bed and then perceive to cover him in an elastic sort of fabric so he can't move, um, muffle his speech with a jelly, put things into his ears and then zoom in horrifically with a needle into the eye. Um, for me, there's a lot of questions. What, what's your overall take on that uh, specific alien abduction? Uh, Kelsey, what, what are your initial views on that? My initial view is that, first off, Fire in the Sky, the movie, is, is just not actually <coughs> think what Travis actually went through and what he claims in his book, which is what I think is a little bit more credible in this, of course, with his testimony. Yeah. So, you know, especially when it comes to him being tested on or probed. I mean, he did arise with some wounds on his body, but it wasn't anything related to what they were saying about him being kind of stuck in that like shell, like, um, you know, I don't know, it was weird, right? It had like jelly on him and he was like almost being reborn or something. It was very, very yeah. weird. That's it not was almost like the matrix, wasn't it? Yeah, very much like the matrix, but that's not at all what Travis said actually happened. Um, so, you know, he would only remember two hours out of the five days that he would be gone, five days and six hours. He was gone and he would only be able to recall two hours of that time. So I just think that you're right, James, there are just so many just questions um, still with his abduction and kind of like what happened with all that time missing. I mean, you got to think um, where, where also Travis is coming from as well. If, if that happened to me and then I saw the movie, I'd be saying, well, first off, where does the pod come from? Mm hmm. 
you know um there's so many inconsistencies in the story i would find it disappointing um you know there's a pod he gets out of the pod he's then in an anti-gravity layer making his way through this spaceship um which which again doesn't what it doesn't look like what you would perceive to be a spaceship i would see a spaceship to be sterile mm-hmm. clean yeah okay yeah um i i would perceive to be metallic I, I wouldn't perceive to be this spaceship in the film is more dusty dirty it's not what you would perceive to be a spaceship so maybe uh he's woke up in in a mothership for instance mm-hmm. but then again that wouldn't then correlate back to travis's original story where he believes he was obviously clearly in a disc um a, a normal run-of-the-mill alien ship and uh, he leaves that ship with the nordic uh humanoid potentially ai creatures into what is a hangar um maybe back on the mothership but i there's so many inconsistencies with the, the Hollywood film. I think it's almost time that, that you may think to yourself, do I discredit the Hollywood film? I think the best bit of that is the investigation, actually. Yeah, I think, I think that the, the film itself is, is good for a guide. Mm-hmm. I think, I think it's, it's, it's quite important to take that film with a little bit of a pinch of salt. Mm-hmm. I think there's, there's, there's things which are in there which not really um, feature in Travis's official accounts. Um, there's also things in Travis's official accounts which are, which are not mentioned. I mean, just to start with, there were um, there's five members of the crew in the film, but there's seven in Travis's official account. So, yeah. just right off the bat, we're we're looking at inconsistencies from the start, even with the most basic of details. Mm-hmm. I, I I think um, we're looking at the film as more based on. Travis's accounts rather than than an official recount of Travis's accounts. Yeah, I think something really important too to give credibility to what Travis was actually saying when he was describing these, you know, gray like aliens. Like we know them as grays, right? They're three to five yeah. feet tall. They've got the big head, big eyes. But like what's crazy is that at the time, you guys have to remember that this was 1975. So like that was not something that was being talked about. I mean, the only case you could really think in correlation was the Betty and Barney Hill case that took place where they also described similar like beings. But what's really interesting is that there's actually a psychologist, Jim Lorenza, who would listen to the recording that, you know, Travis would give and explain kind of what these beings looked like in his experience. And um, actually Jim said that his account was almost identical to another case that he was currently working on um, with another patient that had not been disclosed to the world. So he, so Travis would have never known about this other patient and their experiences. So I think it gives so much validity to what Travis was saying when he was explaining and describing these creatures and what they look like. And now we know, cause we've heard about Gray's, I mean, a ton, right? Um, yeah. And so now we kind of know that there's just so much validity to what he was saying. Um, yeah. I agree. I think um, there's another UFO abduction story, uh, Linda, Napolitano uh, asleep next to her husband in bed where the greys again uh, as you say come into the room and take her away now when you talk about the greys I mean from a personal perspective I think that that's the the, the I, I think that's them um, I, I don't think that there is um, some people say there's hundreds of different varieties for instance of, of different beings and different aliens I think the aliens that are most connected to what you would perceive to be regular aliens maybe from the Zeta Reticuli uh, region of space which we were talking about before um, are the greys three to four feet tall massive black eyes huge heads um, no sexual organs um, very long fingers um, those those are the beings uh, that, that, that I believe as a personal um, I, I think that that's them uh, I, and I think that the fact that Travis explained that and uh, it was brought back up again in a completely unrelated incident to Travis then says to me maybe maybe that they are true so what we've covered so far um during during this story the time's going so fast it's unbelievable um we we've set the scene with kelsey fantastically we've gone through the abduction itself Mm -hmm. james take us through what on earth happens next Mm -hmm. so incredibly you know this has happened uh we touched on that they, they drove back after the incident, they, they drove back to the area, um, the so-called abduction area in, in the forest to look for Travis and to find that he was gone. So obviously mass panic ensues within the, within the crew. Yeah. So you got, you know, seven guys go into the woods, 
six guys come back. These guys are distraught. Um, some of them close personal friends of Travis, obviously in the case of Alan Dallas, not so much. Um, they need, they obviously in hysterics, really, what are we going to do? What do we do about this? We, we can't find him. Eventually the decision is made, right? We need to notify the authorities on this one. Um, again, they're mass hysteria between the, between the crew. So they eventually, they, they reach a rest stop or a gas station. We would call it a petrol station uh, to, to find a payphone. So they go to the, they find the nearest gas station. They, they, they have to find a payphone. Uh, eventually, you know, between the group, it's agreed that Kenny, Kenny Peterson is the one to make the call. At the time, he's the most sort of um, composed after this has happened. Um, so he makes the call. He makes the call, and, he, and, and the, the call is made to Sheriff Marlon Gillespie. Now, Marlon Gillespie is the sheriff of the local area. Mm -hmm. um, he, he knows uh, some of these guys personally, particularly Travis. They, they know they, they're, It's a small town. There's about two to 3,000 inhabitants of Snowflake, Arizona. So they're all, they're all relatively known to the, to the police in there. So they come down, Sheriff, Sheriff Gillespie with his associate, um, his partner, Ken Coughlin. And obviously at first, obviously natural reaction is skepticism. So they take, take the official story from these guys, what's happened. Okay, well, they're, they're talking about alien abduction. They're talking about, effectively from, from the sheriff's perspective, this is a missing persons case. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's what they're, they're dealing with. So if initially the truck is searched, uh, looking for potentially alcohol, narcotics, make sure there's no foul play at, at, at hand here. Um, the truck is searched completely clean, no alcohol, no narcotics, no sign of foul play. Um, this is late into the night now. Um, so, so decisions made by, by the sheriff Gillespie and, and Ken Coplin that they will organize a search effort for the morning. Uh, as soon as sun rises, they will, they'll have a search, um, of the area in the morning. So a mass search effort is undertaken, um, up to 200 policemen on horseback volunteers from the from the local area obviously police uh family members of travis a search efforts organized they all go out to the area where the abduction was alleged to have taken place now some strange things happen while they're up there in the woods firstly um you know at this point that the crew that they're, they're sort of you know that they're, they're hopeful that their stories believe they genuinely believe it they um, they start to get coerced by police. You know, we you know, come on. If you if you just tell us what happened, we're going to go easy on you, etc. Um, the other strange thing that happened up there was that there were some guys allegedly up there doing uh, radiation testing. Now, at the time, uh, Mike Rogers approaches them. He he thinks they're part of the police investigation, so he engages with them. Look, um, you know, if you're testing radiation, why don't you test test us? So they said, okay, what what have you got? He says, okay, in the truck, I've got all our helmets that we were wearing at the time when we were when we were doing the, the, obviously the lumberjacking. So test our helmets. He tests their helmets on this radiation monitor or radiation machine, a bit like a metal detector, that sort of thing, and bang, straight off the scale, full radiation uh, readings coming up, and these guys are like, okay, right. You know, gets another couple to come over, come and check this out, see what we got. Checks the helmets, full radiation reading all the way to the top of the reader. Mike obviously thinks these guys are part of the police investigation. They're not. Uh, these guys sort of disperse. Uh, you know, he's kind of like, where are you going? Where are you going? And, uh, can't locate them again. Goes to find the sheriff. Um, you know, who are these guys with the radiation? You need to speak to these guys. They've got something really interesting with the radiation situation. Um, and then the, he, the sheriff's unaware of them. We don't know who are these guys. We haven't asked them to be here, blah, blah, blah. So obviously this is Mike Rogers' uh, account of things. So that's a strange thing that happened. Obviously in the, in the, you know, the hours and, and potentially the days um, that have happened from this, the, the town, they start to turn on the crew. This is a small town. This is one of their own. He's gone missing. He's gone up into the woods with these guys. Um, the town, the townspeople, the small knit community, they're starting to turn on this group now. 
basically everybody thinks this is a hoax. They think that these guys have taken Travis up into the woods. Something bad has happened. It's foul play. It's a murder. You know, um, the police are probably looking at a missing persons now. Now there's no body found. This is probably heading towards a murder investigation. So there's um, there's a lot of lot of skepticism within the town and, and also anger um, that a beloved a beloved member of the town has gone missing. Adding adding to the mix into this cocktail of of, of craziness, there's a media circus now ensuing in there. So you've got international media, national media, uh, of all congregated on Snowflake, Arizona. News crews from all over the country, some of them international as well, uh, at the fort of a UFO uh, abduction, which obviously at the time, for the time, it's gone, it's gone viral. Uh, so obviously no internet at the time, but it's gone viral for the time, newspapers and everything else. Um, the, the sheriff is starting to get a bit frustrated now. Sheriff Gillespie, right, we need to cut through all the BS now. Mm-hmm. We, we need to get these guys held to account. We need to find out what's going on. So he organizes a polygraph testing, lie detector test. Let's get these guys in. We're going to lie detector test and we're going to expose them. Let's get to the bottom of what's going on. So he engages one of the top polygraph testers in the country of the USA. And now this is a guy that comes in here with a 92 to 98% success rate on his polygraph testing. Uh, comes in individually, one by one, he polygraph tests them, uh, all six of the guys. Now, after the polygraph testing is complete, of the six men that were polygraph testers, all six members of the crew, obviously minus Travis, five of them have passed the polygraph test. Mm-hmm. The only one whose test came back inconclusive, so he hasn't failed, they were inconclusive. Who do you think that was? Which one? Dallas. Alan Dallas. There we go. So Alan Dallas, just for a bit of background, bit skeptical, bit uncooperative with law enforcement anyway. He's probably, he's got some previous with law enforcement, some previous convictions potentially, uh, involvement with the law negatively. So possibly a little bit uncooperative, that sort of thing. Uh, his has come back inconclusive. Incidentally, he did the test years later and passed, mm-hmm. um, just for a bit of context there. So in conclusion to that, it, it, it was deemed that it was almost impossible that all five slash six of these guys would all do the polygraph test independently on their own ask the same questions, ask to provide the same account of the story, and they actually all passed, minus Alan Dallas, who, who was inconclusive. Almost impossible that this could happen. So, at this point, the police are completely stumped. A couple days passes, and then obviously we get Travis re-emerge. What do you think about that, guys? That's crazy. So just like what you were saying about the polygraph, that's a one in one million chance. Um, there's a bunch of really? psychologists. Yeah, a bunch of psychologists that actually reviewed um, the recording and the questions that were asked and said that basically five people could commit a murder, right? Take that polygraph test and they all would not pass still, even with them. Right. So like, it's just crazy to think that they could potentially think that it's a hoax even though that polygraph test, you know, came back five, you know, well, technically six after it was all said and done passed. Yeah. They were being truthful. Exactly. Travis said that he's actually taken about 20 polygraph tests in relation to his experience and he has passed every single one of them. Um, and it's actually kind of funny because Steve, who, you know, has had multiple girlfriends, like since he actually has to take a polygraph test every time he has a new girlfriend, because she doesn't believe him and he passes every time. Yeah. It's kind of a joke between them, but yeah, Yeah, yeah. wild polygraphs. I mean, think about it like this guys, if polygraphs can get you indicted for murder, then how is it that we're not going to say that they're a reliable, credible source when we're talking about an abduction? Yeah. I'll I'll tell you why. Um, I'll tell you why. Um, I agree with you, Kelsey. Mm-hmm. I think um, how can you potentially sentence someone for a crime through a polygraph yet can't vindicate someone on the other side? Um, it's because they're not 100%. Um, they've been known, people have always been known to, 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 to lie on tests to control your breathing, to, de- to, you know, to dive deep into the analytical aspect of a polygraph test. But for five or six guys to be able to... I'm, I'm not disputing that. I'm just disputing the, the the test itself. I mean, Travis Walton um, in the late 
naughty to 2008 2009 went on a game show called uh the moment of truth yes where travis walton discusses the abduction um in depth and they return a negative verdict to say that he is lying now travis um you know naturally will say well that's not right the the questioning wasn't right now i mean my personal opinion i think he's telling the truth um for, for me to stick to a story for well over now 40 years is going to take some doing. It's going to take some regimented discipline uh, to stick to a story. Um, the fact that these guys have managed to pass multiple polygraph tests uh, and also in the immediate aftermath of the event to pass a polygraph test as well states to me that I believe they're telling the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that these guys have been subjected to um, ridicule and potential hoaxes is, is um it's disappointing on the community, and I, and I think um, I, I think I think he's telling the truth. I think Hollywood let him down in his case. Exactly. If you go to 1993, we're now sat here in 2020. Um, 1993, what halfway through from the abduction to where we are now? Mm-hmm. Um, I think Hollywood's let him down, and I think with the revelation that there will potentially be a new account released uh, to the masses around the world that will be more factual and truthful and closer to the source of reality, um, I think that will do much better for Travis's quest of credibility. Do you see yeah, what I mean? For sure, I I agree with you definitely. I just I also think that there's so much evidence that was left out of the movie, and I think it was yeah. intentionally left out of the movie because they wanted to make it more of a cinematic like drama type of experience. They yeah. didn't want to make it actually factual because you know three psychologists reviewed the body language of the participants in that polygraph test, and all three of those psychologists said without a shadow of doubt that based off of their body language alone. So this is a science, right? Your mind can't control your body movements when you're lying. It's, you know, you do certain things when you're lying. And they said that everybody who was taking the polygraph test that was recorded was telling the truth. So, you know, those are different studies. And of course, science to me is something I've always held my hat on, especially when, you know, diving deep into these, you know, UFO and alien abduction accounts, because I think that you can discredit and be a skeptic, right? And you can think, okay, his story is crazy. But then when you add the polygraph test and you add a few other things that we're gonna talk about here, I, I think that you just, you get so much overwhelming evidence that it makes you really question like, how could he not be telling the truth? Travis Walton for me, um, the fact that he's taken all of these polygraph tests uh, suggests that he is telling the truth. I mean, how many has he taken, James? Around 20 polygraph tests? Is that right? It, it's 20, yeah. Yeah, 20 polygraph tests. If you're lying about something, you're not going to want to take more than one. You may take one test to think to yourself, I may be able to cheat the system. I may be able to lower my breathing. I may be able to use anything that I can in my mind to try and beat this test. But to undertake the test 20 times says to me that not only is he telling the truth, I think he's adamant. Um, I think he's right in what he's saying. In terms of the greys, the aliens that he was supposed to have seen during this abduction, I think um, in terms, when you look at Betty and Barney Hill, you look at Linda Napolitano, and you now look at Travis Walton, I think that these are the the aliens that, that are probably closest to us. Um, from the Zeta Reticuli region. So as you leave the Milky Way galaxy, fly by Andromeda, you make your way down to the Zeta Reticuli system. Um, we believe that this is where the aliens um, potentially are from. And, and I'm not afraid to, to say it on a podcast. Um, I, I can quite clearly state that these are, I believe, the aliens, the greys. Um, Skinny Bob. Not a lot of people would have heard of this name before. Skinny Bob um, was an alien. Um, recovered from the crash of Roswell of 1949. Incidentally, one of the first ever UFO crashes recorded in history, and the very first one in which suspicion aroused around the US government's protection of classified information. They initially came out and said, yes, there has been a UFO crash reported in the papers, and then subsequently told it was a weather balloon. Um, So this is the first instance that the U.S. public get of their government that are not telling the truth, which is replicated throughout the Western world, from France to the U.K. to Germany to any Western civilizations. For some reason, the governments will not classify and give out this information to the masses in fear of maybe panic. 
Um, going back to the Travis Walton story, um, I think for me there's one game changer, and that's the polygraph tests. We spoke at length about setting the scene and Travis's upbringing. We spoke at length about the abduction itself. And James gave a great account afterwards into, into what happened after the immediate abduction. Kelsey, do you want to take it away with any uh, AOB and any information that may be relevant to this case? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so I do want to kind of set the scene too for like once he calls his brother. So like he goes to the payphone, which actually is now converted into like a Mexican restaurant, which is kind of funny. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, super cool. So he goes to that payphone and uh, he says that he calls his brother. So I think in the movie it shows Mike, but it's actually his brother, Dwayne, that actually comes and picks him up. And at first they think that he's a prank caller. Um, and so he has to be like, no, 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 it really is me. Because after being gone for five days and six hours, I mean, no one's expecting Travis to show back up again and definitely not show back up alive. So alive. Exactly. He, he's, he's assumed dead at this point, isn't he? assumed dead after after that much time away right so he ends up you know going to the payphone the very first payphone that he tries to call from is actually disconnected it doesn't work he clearly doesn't have any money he goes to the next one he tries to make a call again and at this point he's so weak because you guys have to understand that he hasn't eaten or drank anything in five days and six hours so he is i mean just famished really out of his mind at this point so his brother comes to pick him up um, and, you know, his girlfriend too at the time, who then later becomes his wife, they go to try to get Travis to get into the car. And Travis is just a wreck. I mean, he is just so beyond terrified. Every time they go to try to touch him or grab him, he jerks back as like a knee jerk reaction clearly experiencing some type of post-traumatic stress disorder from what he had experienced, you know, from his abduction. And what they said was that he was about 15 pounds lighter and he had a full beard at this point. And when, you know, before this abduction took place, I mean, he was in fine condition. So the fact that he was showing like externally that something was wrong and then mentally he was just very frazzled. Um, and so his brother then made it upon himself. So in the movie, I think that they really just do him a disservice by saying that the ufologist comes in there and that they instantly take him to the hospital and that he's interviewed, blah, blah, blah. And that's not what happened. He was not in a mental state to talk to anybody. He actually didn't talk to anyone for days because he was just mentally unstable after this traumatic experience that he had. So he would go to his mother's house, Mary. Dwayne would not let anybody talk to, talk to him. And, you know, any questions that were answered within the first couple of days were actually um, answered by his brother and not by him. So any of those kind of accounts that would have been directly from his brother. Um, and, you know, then he finally went to the hospital. When he went to the hospital, he got a urine test. They would do um, an EEG on his brain, an EKG on his heart. He would get full body x-rays. I mean, he was really put through the ringer because they thought that he had been under some type of drug psychosis, you know, that he had taken LSD in the woods and that he, yeah. that's why he was gone for five days, six hours. And, you know, here's the deal is if you're going to be gone for that long, why wouldn't you drink water or eat food? Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Um, one more very... Um... Very, very um, interestingly, um, Travis gave a fantastic interview um, on, on YouTube available. Mm -hmm. What he said was um, he woke up in the forest where he had been abducted earlier. And as we touched on earlier, he saw the, uh, the spacecraft going away. He noticed that he was wearing his clothes. His clothes were on backwards. Mm. Now, that raises a couple of anomalies. First of all, with the film, to show how inaccurate it was, he was uh, seen to be naked in uh, massive freezing cold conditions in the rain in the telephone box, kneeled over in the fetal position, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, if this is the case, if he's wearing his clothes backwards, um, can I definitively say that Travis is telling the truth? I can't. Yeah. Do I believe him? Yes. Um, when you go into percentages and you look at 100%, I'm probably 90 to 95% sure. But if you're looking at clothes, how is it? Okay, just a question for you both. So I, I think we're in all agreement that the greys seem to have some, you know, it's got legs. The greys seem to be, for me, the 
I don't know, the go-to species of an alien. If you were to imagine an alien in your mind, you would immediately think of a three to four foot tall, tiny little thing, you know, gray. If these are so clever that they can travel across the, cross, uh, the cosmos mm-hmm. at light speed, at warp speed, how on earth is it that they managed to get this guy's clothes back on, but backwards? Surely they have some more intelligence than that. Am I wrong? I'm not dispelling the, 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 the situation in what's happened here because I believe Travis. I've stated that. But the bit for me is the clothes on backwards, another red herring, you know, rears its head. What do you think about that, James? It's just, it's just another strange quirk to the story, really, isn't it? Um, I mean, when you say his clothes are on backwards, what, his trousers were? Yeah, his shirt's on uh, backwards, so the buttons are on his back. The flies of his jeans are on his backside do you think that maybe he was laying like flat on like the the table or something and then that's how they put the clothes on also keep in mind too that like these aliens right the grays like they do wear clothes but um they wear like exactly yeah you know like a i don't know yeah like 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 buttons and and a zip you know that's 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 an earthly thing you know that's that's our civilization they may have completely different uh, contraptions and mechanisms to fasten clothes. You know, yeah. it's not it's not out of beyond the realms of possibility that they may not know how to do a zip or uh, or do buttons. It could be a completely foreign. Uh, you know, yeah. It could yeah, be yeah. Uh, material that we're not used to. They may not have Velcro. They may not have buttons. They may not have zips. Exactly, they may have. Yeah. Maybe they have a device that puts their clothes on for them. I yeah. Mean, a universal clip. Oh, I mean, yeah. We have there no- you go. You heard it first. Aliens use universal clips to get clothes on. Yeah. One, one thing I, I did I did want to touch on as well, um, with regards back back on with the poly testing and, and everything else, and obviously with it being a hoax. I just want to put the question to you guys, if there's any evidence to suggest different than what i'm going to say mm-hmm. is that none of none of these guys actually gained anything Mm-mm. from saying that this happened maybe apart from the national Enquirer, which i think kelsey might touch on um uh the national Enquirer gave them the ufo abduction story of the year award in uh in the year of the abduction which is around five thousand dollars um from there you're right they haven't really received any money to our knowledge you know travis to me from from seeing interviews of him now he doesn't strike me as somebody who really wants the limelight no he's got the lazar type um psyche he's like lazar yeah, he's, he's quite unassuming he's quite down to earth he doesn't strike me as somebody that wants you know to be on every news news outlet he doesn't strike me as somebody that wants movies made about him he strikes me as quite a simple mm-hmm. normal guy who wants to get about his business. He doesn't want the cameras in his face all the time. I really don't think... I, I, all right. What I'm going to say now maybe is a little bit uh, controversial. He, When he was initially found, he didn't have much memory or recollection of, of what happened. He did suddenly find his memory when he went on the National Enquirer interview. Possibly coerced into generating some sort of story. To, to sell magazines or, or whatnot. But in, in essence, none of these guys really stood to gain anything from, from saying this. Yeah, because it's not just Travis. There's more men involved. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're one of those other lumberjacks and you're out there and you weren't the abductee, but you were involved in this story, one thing's for sure. You're not going to live your life telling a lie. I would be able to sleep at night if I was right. continually lying about things. These are men's men. Um, yeah. And I think as far as I'm concerned, um, look, this story's got legs. There's no shoulda, coulda, woulda. It it is true that it's got legs. There's no doubt. And I think, um, Kelsey, um, take us through any, um, I mean, how how do you feel? You know, how do do you feel about this story? Do you you think this has happened to Travis? I definitely do. Um, Also, too, just to kind of piggyback on what James was saying, was that Travis actually came back and, and said that he wishes that this would have never happened to him. So after this whole thing happened, he went six years without a job, um, you know, before actually getting a job working um, in a factory. 
And so, you know, the reality is, is that his life was completely changed by this. And a lot of the people who were involved had to move and leave because no one would employ them or hire them. Um, also too, there was, you know, Philip J. Class is somebody who had constantly come out trying to debunk this. And I really want to touch on him because I think that this is all the naysayers really hang their hat on what Philip says. And here's the thing is that Philip says he's a ufologist, but I really think that there's some type of relation to him working for some type of government force because he was going in there and his sole purpose was to discredit Travis, to make him look like he was a liar, to make all of these guys look like they had potentially committed a crime of pretending like this, you know, alien abduction had happened. And the reality is, is that he had no facts. And he actually tried to give Steve, one of the youngest people who was, you know, on the crew at the time, um, he had left and he had tracked him down and he tried to give him $10,000 reward for claiming that everything that they had said was hoax. And Steve refused. And Steve didn't have a lot of money at the time because again, these guys were, you know, in and out of jobs, just trying yeah, to yeah. really make a living. So if you are gonna profit from something like this, I think that, you know, Travis wouldn't have waited for years before, you know, coming out and doing his interviews or even getting a job or he would have tried to make like a mockery of this and try to make it so much bigger than he did. So back to what James was saying, he's a credible source as far as very humble dude, just really wanted to tell his story, um, but also like wishes that it didn't happen to him. Yeah. So I think that that is that guy had to have been working for for the CIA or something. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. I think um, you know I I see some striking similarities with Bob Lazar. I I haven't seen any interviews or anybody's ever come out with this. Maybe it's a personal feeling. Maybe I'm nuts. Maybe I'm crazy. I I don't know. But but from what I see from the outside looking in, is you you if you were to put these two uh, gentlemen next to each other and line up their stories where first of all, something's happened to them, something surreal, something that wouldn't happen to the average Joe. Mm -hmm. First of all, they have to deal with that mentally. Yeah. The second part for me is very interesting. It's about the law enforcement. It's about the, the men in black. It's about the Project Blue Book people in the background, the secret societies of government, which do exist, which claim they don't, but they do. We all know they do. Um, the, the, that is the bit for me that, that tallies up. Bob Lazar, for instance, going back to his story, was shot at his school records deleted from all systems. The fact that he worked down at an army base in Los, Los Alamos, where he took reporter George Knapp around the premises to show exactly where he used to work. Yet according to the official documentation, he never worked there. Um, you flip back over again to, to the fire in the sky story and Travis Walton yet again with the 10,000 bung offered to the youngest member of the crew, seen as the weakest member of the crew, um, again, to try and debunk him, smacks of desperation from probably uh, an agency which is on its knees in terms of trying to keep this secret up. I think the rabbit's out the hat. I think it's 2020 in light of the New York Times' latest revelations with Colonel Shraver's uh, revelations again on the Tic Tac incident. Um, I think for me, 2020 is a big year for UFOlogy. I think it's a big year for disclosure. And I think it's a big year in general for everything out of outer world the the revelation that the u.s army have outer world objects they the have outer world yeah. yeah exactly and and the bit for me um there's there's too much smoke without fire mm -hmm. and and i think um for me i i believe travis in fact i feel sorry for him I, I yeah. think it's dominated his life like bob lazar they seem to me like you know these aliens go for people that are quiet and unassuming maybe they haven't spoke to someone who will shout from the rooftops exactly what they've been through and try and capitalize on it i don't know maybe they are watching us yeah. maybe they are um what a story yeah. what, what an absolute story can we touch on one last thing too because i think that this really gives legs to this story even deeper and i want to talk about the tree rings and the study that was done with the trees, because you guys, this was like something that really gave me like the heebie-jeebies, the total goosebumps, because there's no possible way for you to be able to just manipulate this data. There's just no way. So basically what happened was um, that they ended up doing a tree field survey 15 years later in the area in which um, he was abducted from. So remember, they think that he had some type of radiation kind of blast, right? 
So this radiation, um, they would have Ben Hansen come in and Ben Hansen was the host of a show Factor Lack. And he went on there with like a team of people and uh, he basically was surveying the area and they were taking tree samples and tree ring samples. And what they found was quite interesting and very, very compelling. They found that all the trees that were surrounding the area where the craft was allegedly at, those rings were actually growing exponentially faster towards the area where the radiation would be emitting from. So a tree that was 85 years old, that would be just six inches in diameter, would be 12 inches in diameter after just 15 years. That is more than double of a tree growth rate. That's almost four times of a growth yeah. rate in 15 years. And so that radiation alone was causing these trees to grow faster and more rapid. And then if you look at a study done in 1997. Um, it was in a university in Poland. They did a study on radiation effects on trees and they found that it does have accelerated tree growth and also too the bark grows quicker and like the fibers, they're more fibrous, 36 times more fibrous. So they're growing faster. There was also a ton of other documentations next to nuclear plants where the trees actually ended up growing faster and towards the nuclear plant um, or anywhere where there might've been a radiation blast. So riddle me this, how is it that Travis is going to manipulate the growth of trees in that forest for 15 years like, yeah. I'm just not buying it. Like, nature will always prevail, and nature is telling us that this really happened. Yeah, that, that's, that's what really does it for me, uh, Kelsey, is the fact that it, you cannot manipulate nature. You can't manipulate science. You can't manipulate nature. You can't manipulate statistics. And that, that, that what you touched on there with, with regards to the radiation, uh, going back as well, adding to the, the, the alleged um, radiation testing done on the day after the attack. So this mm -hmm. is a clear radiation, radioactive site. It's undeniable, uh, but you know, you, ca you cannot fake nature. No. You just can't. Do you know, um, radiation, radiation seems to be the fuel of the cosmos, mm -hmm. you know? say that I'm going off topic, maybe, say I'm going back to the Lazar situation, yeah, maybe, may but I think the similarities, again, are striking. Bob Lazar was cutting into a nuclear reactor of an anti-gravity, um, an anti-gravity machine, which was obviously the UFO. When you talk about the Travis Walton story and radiation, again, the only thing that can um, give off this amount of radioactive energy would then be a nuclear um, body, for instance, which then gives off that radioactive scent, as it were, back onto the to the trees around the around around the area of the abduction. Um, I think from where I'm coming from, yeah, again, there's there's too much smoke without fire. There's too much stuff that's not been declassified. Um, again, a perfect name for this podcast and this, this meeting of us three would be No Smoke Without Fire, the Travis <laughs> Walton Revelations. I yeah. think that's what we've got to, that's what we've got to call it. Um, as far as I'm concerned, so let's summarize. Let's go with a final conclusion from all three of us. Um, do you know what? Let's start with Kelsey. Um, Kelsey. How do you think this thing eventually plays out? Do you, do you think that this is real? I mean, you've already stated you think it's real, but, but, but do, how do you think, where do we go from here? What happens to Travis Walton and his story in your opinion? Well, coming from a United States perspective, because I know that we're just governed a little bit differently than you guys are in the UK. I know that our government has, you know, we spend the most on military, right? I mean, we spend about 10 times what other countries um, spend on military. And I think- combined. Combined, yes, thank you so much. We spend a ridiculous amount. So I think that they have tried to keep the existence of aliens hushed for so long because they are holding on to that alien technology that they have probably been slowly integrating into our lives. And what they're trying to do is, of course, stop you know other countries from getting probably this, this type of alienware 
they're probably at a point now where they kind of can't stop it because so many people, I mean, there's 12,000 UFO accounts every single day now, and they're continuing to accelerate and these reports are getting more wild. And you know, if you guys ever tune into my channel, you know that I only report on things that come with government documents. And there are countries like Brazil who believe that aliens are very much exist and they declassified a lot of documents due to the Freedom of Information Act. And you can find for yourself government entities that claim that this stuff is real and that this is something that is a bit of a national crisis in the sense that we have to think of our security. And I think that us talking about this and giving credibility and giving legs to Travis's story, to Betty and Barney Hill, to Bob Lazar, and really talking about the history of UFOs and how alien abductions have been happening for years, but less people actually report them now than ever before. So do we really know how bad it is? No, we have no idea, but I don't know if this is the year our government comes out and says everything. I know that they're planning on coming out with a little bit more information about the Wilson document and about those UFO, um, those crafts that they supposedly have. Um, as well as more information about some other UFO instances that have happened, but I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. And, uh, and I think that we can just all agree that um, where there's smoke, there's fire. Absolutely. Now, I, I think from my perspective, um, UFOs and aliens is a real, it's a real taboo subject. It's one of those real taboo subjects that the mainstream media just will not touch. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a very easy stick to beat somebody with. Oh, you believe in aliens, you're crazy. You think UFOs are real, you're crazy. It's almost a belittling tool yeah. to use against people. And, and, it, and it's used to almost discourage people from looking further, discourage people from speaking mm -hmm. out, discourage people from, you know, like Travis, for example. Has he ever received real mainstream notoriety? Probably not. The National Enquirer was probably as good as it ever got. And that was in the immediate buzz after. So it's, it's one of those things where it's never going to really see the light. They, you know, this Travis Walton story, there, there, are, there are stories of much, much less exciting accounts of people who have made a complete career in the mainstream media off of the back of, you know, things a lot less exciting happening to them. And they're still relevant even today. It's, 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 it's a taboo subject. It's, it, it, like I said, it's used as a belittling tool to discredit people. Um, just for example, Muhammad Ali, in the, in the years after the Snowflake incident with Travis Walton, he actually set up his training camp in Snowflake, Arizona, because of his um, enthusiasm in UFOs. And he was a big um, speaker on ufo activity and he actually also claims to have seen ufos in the lead up to fights and that sort of thing and it oh, yeah. and it helped him it inspired him to go ahead and win fights and that's muhammad ali so but not a lot of people know that because again it would be used as a belittling tool on muhammad ali oh he muhammad ali great fighter but he was crazy he believed ufos so it is something that people use it's a real taboo subject so i don't think it will ever get the mainstream um coverage that it, that it really deserves um, and, and I don't think we'll ever truly know the truth because the, the, the real funding for investigation, that sort of thing, will just never come. At um, least not right now, because do you guys think that they're starting to release some of this information? Do you think because something big is about to happen that they're trying to like do a, like almost like lift the veil a little bit for us and just see how we take it? Because they did it during COVID, during a global pandemic where they thought that no one was really paying attention or at yeah. least react, right? They did it when we were distracted. So I wonder if like, this is something that has been leading up for many years. And I wonder if the veil is finally going to be lifted because something big is happening and something big is coming. And I personally, I'm very terrified by it, but also super intrigued. And I think that people should listen to more podcasts like this and get more alien information because I do think that the more knowledge you have, the better especially with yeah. something that is very much real and very much happening based off of scientific data, like the tree rings and like his yeah. testimony and other things that have happened. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll agree with that. I think um, this year, 2020 is a big year. Um, we have COVID. First of all, in our country, in the United Kingdom, the government now know they can control us by putting us into lockdown. 
Um, they now know that they control us with face masks. Again, around the world, uh, a lot of institutions, a lot of countries can control their populations. Um, one theory that has been muted is that um, in terms of lowering the veil or lifting the veil, as you say, um, expertly so, um, it's a perfect analogy. Think about this. We're under lockdown. We've got the masks on. We're in the palm of the government's hands, whatever, whatever they say we'll do. Um, the bit that comes from me that, that is quite shocking, again, the New York Times seem to be taking the lead on this. Um, they seem to be the first, um, I would say, the world over nationally officially recognized um, news outlet that are reporting on UFOs. And they say that the US government have outer world craft. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is that no one's talking about it. Um, Kelsey, you're right. And, and I'm going to say you're right because you're right in when you say that we are preoccupied. Um, our attention is elsewhere. If you go back even two or three years and a government announces that they have outer world spacecraft, it can guarantee you bottom dollar, that's on the front of every newspaper. That's exactly. on the front of every exactly. magazine. It's on the internet. It's in your text message. It's in your notifications. It's everywhere. It's on your toilet paper. It's all over the place. And the fact of the matter remains, this year is a big year, not only for space travel and commercial space flight with Elon Musk, SpaceX, making it out into space now and, 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 and you know, really joining forces with NASA. The fact of the matter is, is what on earth is out there that they're not telling us about? And is the fact that people like Elon Musk are now starting to reach out into space, are they going to find something that they don't want us to know? Think about the space force that America do have now, which Donald Trump signed off. Think about the space shuttle that the U.S. Army have that no one ever talks about. Unmanned, tiny miniature space shuttle. They say that it was up in space. They won't say what it was doing. Um, I, I, again, the, the overall overriding feeling I get from this podcast is, one, I believe Travis Walton, and two, there simply is no smoke without fire. Agreed. Totally. <laughs> Podcast Network.